The following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. And now, here's Dr. Dan. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, join me if you would in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. After this morning, we're going to have one more sermon in Romans at the end of chapter 16. There's more in there, but I think for now we've covered what I think the Lord would have me to preach from Romans 16. We'll probably be moving on to the book of Acts sometime later this summer. There's a few things I think God wants me to speak on here. But we're in Romans chapter 15, and it is an interesting section because in chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 15, verse 13, it seems like Paul is taking all of these random theological themes from the book of Romans and tying them together to make application to the key problem that the Roman church was facing, which was a lack of unity was robbing the church and it was robbing God of the glory that he was due because of their disunity. Now this week, uh, Vacation Bible School, one of the themes, uh, actually it was the key theme, was the glory of God, the glory of God. And Chrissy told me you, you're going to be talking for about five, okay, maybe ten minutes on Wednesday night. And so I said, well, I should probably talk about something that's connected to VBS. So I decided that I should probably talk about the glory of God. Now, what I know that the kids didn't know was that there are books, there are doctoral dissertations taken up with the concept of what the Bible says about the glory of God. And I thought, well, how do I put this in kid language. What the truth is, to put it in kid language, is actually really helpful. And so I listened around, I looked around, and I put some random thoughts together, and I came across this little audio clip of Dr. John Piper describing the glory of God. This was the most helpful description I've ever come across. He said that the glory of God is the character of God on full display to be observed. The, the glory of God is the character of God, His attributes. What are we talking about? His, his love, His power, His majesty, His holiness. His ability to do whatever He wants to do. His righteousness. And on and on we could go. And that glory is on full display. And, and so in Vacation Bible School, they had koalas and kangaroos and all these other duck-billed platypuses. What a unique animal that is. And what you're looking at is creatures who display the glory of God. When you look at the trees, when you experience, uh, when you internally know the difference between right and wrong on something, that came from God. The human race is aware that God exists. All they have to do is look at creation. All they have to do is watch a kangaroo jump. Think, where did that thing come from? And so heavens declare the glory of God, that God is real, that He is special. But now the problem comes in, because while we can see God, we can see that He exists through what He has created, we don't know Him as we ought to know Him. Why? Because a long, long time ago, after God had created the heavens and the earth, He creates Adam and Eve, He puts them in the garden, and He says, Everything is yours to enjoy. Enjoy this glorious creation that I have made. But don't eat of that tree. And so at that point in human, in human history, God was speaking to men and women on a personal basis. 
When you trace through the Bible and there's this burning bush, you see this glorious thing that God is doing, the bush doesn't get burned up, and then God talks glory. Humans now know better this glorious God. The writing of the Scripture, that's God communicating to people who are far from Him, and then Jesus Christ comes. And we see this theme traced from Genesis to Revelation of creation, fall, which brings death, and then we see salvation. And now in the book of Romans, we see God has brought Jews and Gentiles together through faith in Jesus Christ. But now go back to the Garden of Eden. What was on display? What was the issue that Satan brought charge against God for? He was actually the first critical theorist to try to destroy a family. He came up to the children of God and said, Has God indeed said that you can't eat that tree, eat the fruit of of that tree? And Eve goes, Well, yeah, he said, You can't look at it, you can't smell it, can't think about it. Actually, she's making God worse than he actually was. Okay, God's perfect. She's making God's rule worse than it actually was. And Satan's like, No, 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 no. Here's the criticism. God has not, He knows that when you eat of this tree, you're going to be wise like Him. He's, a, he's really not that good of a father. He's not that glorious. He is keeping you down, trying to ruin you from experiencing all the blessings of the universe. He's not as glorious as you think He is. And so they eat, and then all of a sudden, of course, they realize they're naked, and they're now separated from God, the Father. And how does it go now that we have destroyed this relationship? Well, Adam and Eve turn on each other. One kid rises up and kills another kid. And this begins the bloody, brutal history of the human race without God. And so now we get to the book of Romans, and here's what's happened. Jesus Christ has come. He is the Son of God. He lives a sinless life. He's born of a virgin. He dies on a cross Not because of sins that He has committed, but because of our sins. To pay for our sins. Why? So that through the forgiveness of sins, we can be reconciled to our glorious, heavenly Father. So we can know Him. This splendid Creator who is unlike anything that the human race has known. This God who is there, who we didn't fully know. And so now we have this thing taking place. This is hot off the presses in Rome. For us, we're reading the Bible almost 2,000 years later after this takes place. This is hot off the presses. Jews and Gentiles avoided each other. And now they're brought into this family, this church, through faith in Jesus Christ. But they're struggling to maintain the unity. See, one of the things that we sometimes lose sight of is that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that's not the end of the story of salvation. For us, salvation is sort of like when we put our trust in Jesus, that's like the starting gun went off and now we're in this race following Jesus Christ. And in this race following Jesus Christ, we experience transformation to become more like Him from one degree of glory to the another. Now, how does that happen? What are the things that take place? What are the, what's the pathway through which God works? Well, at Calvary, we talk about the fact that uh, transformation happens when we gather for worship, when we grow in personal devotions and in growth groups, like Sunday school and small groups on Sunday night. And then we go. We find a place uh, to serve God and serve others, both inside the church and beyond the walls 
of the church. And so those things are, are being damaged by the lack of unity in the church. And the lack of the unity in the church was, was basically boiled down to two things. The Jews who believed in Jesus still felt it was necessary to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. You couldn't eat certain foods. If you read the Old Testament out, you realize there was certain clothing they couldn't wear because you couldn't have mixed fibers together. You, you, you had to celebrate certain festivals. And the Jews thought you had to keep doing those things or you'd be dirty before God, not so good with Him. And they also had this belief that if you didn't separate, dirty too. So there was sort of this condemnation of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were like, look, we're going to keep buying food sold at the meat market, even though at one time it was offered as sacrifice to, uh, to idols. They weren't worried about this kind of stuff. We're not going to start being kosher. We know we are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there was turmoil over cultural differences. And this was harming the unity of the church. But I want you to understand something. The unity of the church is critical for our effectiveness. And so Paul writes to the Romans, and here's essentially what he says. God has brought you together, therefore welcome each other the way that Christ Jesus has welcomed you. And we'll see that in Romans chapter 15, verse 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for today. We thank you that you are a good and glorious heavenly Father who wants to know us. We, we thank you for our fathers and Just help us to remember that they are a gift to us from you. Help us to honor them. We pray today for a, a work of the Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul prayed, that we might abound in faith, hope, peace, love to the glory of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The effectiveness of a church is connected to its unity in at least three ways. Number one, when a church is unified, glorify Him, they sing His praises. And when a church is not unified, well, that unity is destroyed and or tarnished. And it is difficult with one voice to praise and glorify God. Second thing is, when, when the unity of the church is not what it should be, it affects our witness to the world. And the third thing is, when a church's unity is 
not as it should be, it hinders our ability to be a tool of transformation in the lives of each other, in each other's lives. So when we gather for worship, we're hindered. When we uh, go to serve those be inside and beyond the church, we're hindered. And when we work to disciple and to develop believers, the work is hindered by a lack of unity. And Paul says, hey, guess what? What you need to do is welcome each other the way that Christ has welcomed you. And chapter 14, uh, verse 1 through 23, sort of lays out the problem. The problem was that uh, the Jews wanted to be kosher and the Gentiles weren't concerned about that. As far as they were concerned, everything was still on the menu so long as it tasted good. And so there, this is a simplification. How might I put this in modern Amer- relatively modern American parlance? I've been thinking about this. Back after the Vietnam War, when the soldiers came back, they weren't always treated well by a certain group of people. We used to call them hippies. They didn't get along. But now imagine they've come to church together. You got a soldier dressed in his in his in his military dress fatigues or dress uniform, and then you have a hippie wearing a tie and they're worshiping Jesus together. Welcome each other the way Christ has welcomed you. A black father worshiping next to a white father with their children together. A Democrat and a Republican. Worshiping God together. Welcoming each other as Christ has welcomed you. When we do this, what we are doing is imitating Jesus Christ. We are taking on His values. Acting like Him. And we see what that looks like in verse 7. We see that Jesus was glorifying God the Father. In verse 7, Christ Jesus glorified God the Father by welcoming sinners who come to Him. Look what it says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God the Father. Get this, when we welcome each other, we glorify God the Father because we are doing what Jesus did in welcoming and reconciling sinners to the Father. So Paul exhorts those who enjoy freedom in Christ, that's probably Gentiles, to welcome believers who are weaker in faith. That's probably the Jews. And when believers, when strong believers endure with those of weaker faith, we are imitating Christ and thus glorifying Him. Not sure if that's true. Look at Romans 5, verse 1 and 2 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul apparently has developed, or has has given a great amount of attention to this issue of the unity of the Romans, of, of the Roman Christians, We see that in 14 and 15, but he was anticipating it in chapter 5. Look what he writes. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, declared right and accepted by God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, that's Jesus, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through Jesus Christ, we, are, we now stand in a grace relationship, not in an accusatorial relationship with God. The things that divided us from God, and as you see in the book of Ephesians, the things that separate us from each other have been torn down. Verse 6, While we were still weak, I think he's talking about weak at faith, He's talking about weak in faith. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
So what he is essentially saying is, look, you guys are you're divided, and I recognize that the, the Gentile Christians have stronger faith because they're simply trusting Jesus, and the Jews are trusting faith, are trusting in Jesus, but also feel like they have to do these other things. Welcome each other anyway. The way that Christ welcomed you. Because then you're agreeing with Jesus Christ. You are then acting like him. And it glorifies God. What is the glory of God? It's God's character revealed. Be like Jesus. Welcome each other as Christ welcomed you. Without discrimination. Now, the Jews and the Gentiles, they had a specific issue related to food. But the principle applies in other areas. Uh, Welcome each other without discrimination over things like, of course, skin color, tattoos, style of clothes. Welcome each other. Second thing we see is that Christ Jesus glorified God the Father by proving that God's Word can be trusted. Translation, God the Father is a promise keeper. Look at verse in the first half of verse 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That they might step back, receive salvation, and say, Wow, our God is merciful. And thus explain, ex, uh, uh, glorify Him. Point, the, point the, the eye of the world to God and say, look how great this God is. Christ Jesus, what He is saying in verse 8 and 9 is that Christ Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to the Jews' fathers and grandfathers, the patriarchs. And as it would turn out, He's also then inviting the Gentiles to come and know this God that was basically... Only the Jews knew. The Gentile fate was tied to God's promises to the patriarchs of Israel. It seemed like the promises weren't going to be fulfilled. God is glorious because He keeps His promises. What does it mean for us to glorify God? It could show up in a lot of different ways. When during the week I encounter Is that God is at work in my life and I, I'm kind, I'm loving, I'm uh, generous. Uh, I'm revealing God. When I, as a father, love my children well and I provide for them, protect them, and treat their mother appropriately, this glorifies God the Father. When we don't do these things, we rob Him of the glory He is due. When we don't talk about His splendor, we're not glorifying Him. We serve a gracious Heavenly Father. A long time ago, I was first time I ever encountered critical theory in any form in an academic setting was when I was uh, studying sociology. And I had a professor who did not like his dad. And perhaps his dad was bad, I don't know him. But then when the Promise Keepers became a big thing in the late 90s and early 2000s, I remember him coming to class and criticizing all fathers everywhere. Applying critical theory to fathers in an attempt to separate dad from their college-aged kids. Do you think that still happens? 
I assure you, it is only God. When he said that, I'm sitting there stewing. You are talking about my dad. Because he keeps his promises to mom. To me, you're talking about Uncle Jerry. A simple, godly man who just goes to work and takes care of his family. But don't pour acid on him either. I am so grateful for my father and for my uncle Jerry, godly men who love Jesus and kept their promises. Don't let this world rob you of the joy of having fathers in your life. Our world's not so sure that dads are a good thing. It's because they're stupid. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And he shows up as God the Father. And there are theologians who want to minimize that, but it's what it says. Jesus came and glorified His heavenly Father. Love their wives and children as Jesus would have us to love them. We glorify our heavenly Father. Because we're living the way God intended us to do. When we, however, the focus of our text is welcoming others as Christ welcomed us. Through faith in Christ, we are welcomed to a relationship to God the Father that was separated by sin. And we demonstrate the glorious grace and beauty of the gospel not only when we live as fathers that God would want us, like God would want us to be or as mothers that God would want us to be, but when we welcome others as Christ welcomed us, then we too are giving glory to our Heavenly Father who kept His promises to the Jews to, and also welcomed the Gentiles. But it turns out when you look at the Old Testament, there are all these promises that God had made, these invitations to the Gentiles to come alongside the Jews and worship them. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 9 and 9 through 12. Look at the second half of verse 9 all the way through 12. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, that's David speaking. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. That's magnify, that's glorify. Verse 12, and Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Who's Jesse? That's David's father. And what he is saying, a time is coming, this prophecy probably seemed impossible, but a descendant of David was going to come. A descendant according to the flesh. Even he who arrived... Think this through as a Jew who would have heard this. The Gentiles were the bad guys. And as far as they were concerned, if the king comes from the line of David, he's going to crush them. He's going to extol him. But it goes on to say that in him will the Gentiles... 
the God of hope. The Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament writers to invite the nations to join them in glorifying God. And now through Christ, it's happening. Jesus was prophesied to be the anointed king and the future hope of the world. That future has, is now. It has come. All who put their trust in Jesus are welcome in the presence of God the Father because Jesus came to save us. We have reason to hope in the glory of God. Our salvation as non-Jewish people, if there's Jewish people in the audience, I guess we don't. I serve a Jewish Savior according to the flesh. And in Him I hope. Jesus has brought to pass what God the Father promised and has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Jesus gives us reason to be united in this hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul prays for a work of the Holy Spirit, so that they might have the strength of faith necessary to believe in what Jesus Christ has done in their midst. To believe it in such a way that it changes their behavior. He's praying that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the unity that Christ had created would not be torn down by their criticisms of each other. Creating and maintaining the united group that is the church is a work of the Holy Spirit. Creating and maintaining the united group that is the church is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. I'll give you a moment to get there. For just as the body is one and has many members, talking there about the church, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Once again in Corinth, the unity of the church was at risk. And so he reminds them, hey, listen, you who think you're special and you who think you're not so special, God has brought you together through the work of the Holy Spirit. Creating and maintaining the unity that is the church is a work of the Holy Spirit. So now Paul is praying essentially in, in Romans 15, 13, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would have the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's an expanded list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it also helps promote the unity of the church and make being a part of it a blessed thing. See, 
To be the type of church that God wants us to be, we need a work of the Holy Spirit. So pray for that. That's what Paul did. To be the type of Christian as individuals that God wants us to be, we need a work of the Holy Spirit. Pray for it. Ask for it. To to be the type of Christians that God wants us to be, we need a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I know I'm talking to Baptists this morning. Y'all get nervous when I talk like this. But I think I'm on good ground here. We're not talking about the twilight zone. We're talking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And the source of this is Jesus Christ. And the connection to it is faith. He's praying that they'd have an increase of faith so they could really experience the work of the Spirit in their midst. Pray that God would increase our faith in Jesus our faith in who He is and what He has done and what He is doing. Paul seems to be saying that that is the pathway to being filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I need that as individual Christians and as a church if we're going to be all that God intends for us to be. Perhaps this morning, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. I think the response this morning is to pray for that. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your life. Maybe you say He already is. Well, Paul seems to be praying that there be more of it. That's why I use the word abound. There's more. See, true faith in Jesus Christ ultimately leads to a change of behavior. an increase of love. Twenty years ago, I'm not as much like Christ as I ought to be. I'm not as glorious as Christ intends for me to be. And it's not like getting under into a squat cage and just pushing harder on my own strength to become what God wants me to be. It really is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so we should pray for that. Finally, perhaps this morning you have are not a believer. Maybe you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something. You need the Holy Spirit to be the kind of person that God intended for you to be. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all like kangaroos that don't hop. Birds that don't fly. That doesn't mean we don't ever do anything good. It means that we're not what God intended for us to be. And that is to our shame. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Includes me and everybody in this room. That's the bad news. There's more. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God. But the free gift of God. Is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as Chad comes to play our song of invitation. One last verse for you. 
Bible tells us in Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, if you'd like to call on the name of the Lord or find out what's involved with that, I invite you, make your way to the front or perhaps grab me later in the service, after the service, and say, what do I need to do to follow Jesus Christ? And finally, for the church, perhaps this morning the response that's appropriate is to bow and pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in our church. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. Thank you for listening.